Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are here continuing our journey into the quantum of solace. Uh, first of our two interviews, though we have a third interview not connected with the film next week as well. Uh, Cam, who do we have up first? Yes, we are here this week to talk to actor Rufus Wright, who appears as a treasury agent in a memorable scene in Quantum of Solace, but also has several other spy credits, including movies like, you know, Spy Game, Rogue One, just some obscure ones here and there. Yeah, and Operation Mincemeat, which came out recently that I'm a big fan of. So without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And joining us now on the show, one of the stars of this week's film, Quantum of Solace, it is Mr. Rufus Wright. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I, I, I'm not so much enjoying this uh, British weather we're having at the moment. It's getting quite cold out. but uh, It's sure we... biblical out there most days, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely brutal. Um, I was in Disneyland Paris the other day, and I will never forget the sight of watching some people on one of those rides which slowly revolves around a central <laughs> axis, you know, when you're going slowly up and down. Mm -hmm. And so a driving rainstorm started, <laughs> and they were in these little kind of miniature spaceships, <laughs> just kind of absolutely battered with rain. And it was um, all things. They had obviously having the worst time of their lives, but never mind. I think it'd be the cheerful song that's playing whilst they're being drowned that uh, yeah, would yeah. really there's put a, me off. There's a lot of piped music in Disneyland, a lot. You can't go anywhere without a speaker in a bush playing a kind of jaunty tune. And uh, yeah, that exactly when the driving rain is forcing itself between your eyelids, it's pretty horrific. Hmm. Well, um, we're focusing on Quantum of Solace this week. And you, you pop up as a treasury agent in the film. And I want to dig into that a little bit, but let's just uh, sort of set the table a wee bit before we get there. Mm. Um, because you've got quite the spy credentials in your filmography. There's quite a lot of films there that you've uh, you've popped into recently. Operation Mincemeat, all the way back to Spy Game, one of our favorite films as well. Mm. Tons mm. to discuss. But right. um, all before that, Rufus, what made you want to get into acting in the first place? Um. Uh... I, like a lot of the actors I'm sure you speak to, I sort of got into it when I was a teenager. It wasn't so much school as um, a club that my dad used to work at, a very posh kind of members club called the Hurlingham Club in Fulham. Um, my dad was it. like a hunting... Oh, you know the Hurlingham? Okay. Mm -hmm. So my dad was a, was a major general in the British Army. He was a very high-ranking soldier and had a kind of 40-year career starting in the literally in the 1940s, straight after the war. Uh, through to the early 1980s. He retired as Major General in 85. And then he started working at the Hurlingham Club, ran it. And I got free membership, you know. And as a posh South London club, the drama activities for kids were fantastic. And we had, you know, a decent budget. And we used to do things like Godspell and Joseph and, and Jesus Christ Superstar, stuff like that. So that's when I first started doing kind of proper plays and getting leading roles and all of that. And it's a very... Um, enticing feeling for a teenager to have a bunch of adults in the palm of his hand um or her hand and it, it it's uh yeah it's a very invigorating and addictive feeling so i started going to get a bigger roles and then a couple of roles at school and stuff but it was really those those plays when i was about 13 14 that made me think oh hang on this is an exhilarating feeling and some of the grown-ups would say at the end oh you're very good at this you should think about doing this for a living and my dad, of course, was not particularly <laughs> in favour of me doing it. Um, 
And uh, although he completely changed and was the most supportive and wonderful, wonderful man, he died, unfortunately, 10 years ago, but he was incredibly supportive and kind uh, and came to see everything I was in, talked about me constantly to his friends. So it all sort of changed. But um, uh, it was by no means it's been a you know, it's been it, it, it's not it's not an easy um, career. And Spy Game, which we'll talk about in a bit, was my first sort of my first movie in 2001. Uh, even then, I'd been acting for, I guess, four, four or five years by that stage. It was the first, it wasn't my first filming job, but it was my first film, per se. And, um, yeah, um, it's kind of continued from there, I guess. What would you say, you know, because acting, as you said, it's a difficult profession. What was the first moment that kind of gave you confidence that this could be a profession? Um, do you know, in a way, it was the first paycheck. I remember... Um, uh, uh, People would say to me, oh, your parents will be very um, suspicious and and down on you being an actor until they see you on TV. <laughs> and then they'll tell their friends and then everything sort of changes. So it was partly that. It was partly uh, the first play I did, which was in 1997. It was a production of Richard II. Uh, and it was literally getting, we paid, I think we were paid in cash and it was something like 200 pounds a week or 200 pounds a week, but it was getting that envelope of cash in it. And it was partly the first commercial I did, which was for a mobile phone shop. And I got, you know, 10 or 20,000 pounds for that in about 2000 or 2001. So all of those, I suppose those are all financial moments. Um, but, you know, as you know, being an actor is so much about struggling to pay the bills and get from, you know, get to the next pay, uh, rent, rent check. Um, so uh, in purely pragmatic terms, it was those kind of little, little landmarks of being rewarded and being paid for doing the work but in terms of just the value of the work and like this is great and I can feel myself doing this I did a play called The Back Room in 1998 that was set in a um a kind of it was I was a rent boy um had a great cast uh it was in a small London theatre called the Pleasance Theatre but that was the first time I thought oh this is new writing I'm playing a part that's very out of my comfort zone and people are on their feet and it's a great, it's getting a great reception. So I think that was probably the first time I got excited about being an actor. Um, and then I think in filming terms, it was probably Spy Game, actually. Well, I think before we chart the waters of Spy Game and, and, and Bond, I suppose, as well, um, James Bond, how mm. was that for you? I mean, you're British, I'm British. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, we're brought up on it most of the time. But for you, was it a big part, big part of your upbringing? Uh, it was, yeah. Um, I think for all of us, um, Scott, English people, I guess, growing or British people growing up, um, Bond Bond has a certain sort of cachet and you're encouraged to sort of identify or not with Bond. In fact, I've just started very, reading a very interesting book that I'm sure you would enjoy by Simon Winder about Bond and the myth of Bond kind of created post-war. And how it sort of answered a lot of questions that were left. I can't remember the name of the book now, stupidly, but it's a brilliant, very funny book. And it's sort of it, it looks at the history of Britain in the First and Second World Wars and how Bond was Fleming's sort of answer to, to the British crisis of identity after the Second World War. Um, anyway, so I'd always enjoyed Bond. I'm, I'm not an absolute expert or fanatic, which I think is probably helpful when you're in, in a Bond movie, because otherwise you just turn to jelly. <laughs> um, uh, and um i yes i certainly grew up i mean i was born in 74 so i was sort of roger moore was my bond you know and um i sort of grew up going to a couple of the movies i remember i 
did I when when was Moonraker? Was that about seventy seven or seventy eight? Seventy nine. Seventy nine was it? Okay, I think that was the first one I saw in the cinema. Although I was only five, so that probably doesn't that probably doesn't sound right actually. Um, but yeah, I I I I was always a big fan, and then um, uh, I loved Pierce Brosnan, and then the Daniel Craig movies really excited me as they did all of us right it was a complete revolution it was like it was like what tony blair did to the labor party it was like we can do this with this franchise we can totally revolutionize it and so i was thrilled when when i was able to be a very small part of the of the universe you know and how did the details go in terms of getting that job um it was uh one quick meeting with debbie mcwilliams who i think is still casting the bond movies i believe so um and it was somewhere glamorous, like I think it was in Piccadilly, like the Athenaeum Club or somewhere like that. It was a rather glamorous location. And um, this is 2008. So it was, it was sort of pre the manic NDA um, sort of um, hysteria, actually, around movie projects nowadays in which you're not sent a copy. Of, we'll talk about Rogue One later, but in which you're never sent a copy of the entire script. Uh, all the pages are watermarked to an absurd degree. Uh, you can't discuss the project with anybody you've ever met, you know, all that sort of thing. So Quantum of Solace was actually quite a, a simple look. Here's the scene. Um, uh, and I went along and read it, I think, once. And they said, thanks very much. And then I think it was a day or two later, I got the call saying I, I had the job and, and um, I was absolutely thrilled. And I was absurdly thrilled that they sent me things with kind of 007 compliment slips and you know <laughs> I used to collect the little bits of stationery that were included in the envelopes I was I thought that was just absolutely amazing well so one of the things we've charted with some of the interviews for Quantum of Solace is it's troubled upbringing it's quite well documented now the obviously the writer's strike really hindered the film mm. um did that was that something you got a sense of uh with the production or was the scene ready by the time you got it and and that's what you shot uh no i think we were aware of the it was called bond 22 kind of on all the call sheets and everything and um um yeah we were aware of the of the kind of wobbles around production and i was given i don't think i was given much new to do but there was an actor called brendan o'hay who's in the scene with us in that treasury scene he's wearing a sort of tweed jacket yeah and he starts briefing judy on the on the um um developments in the case and he was given an entirely new set of lines to learn god love him and really struggled with it he was actually friends with judy he knows judy dench quite well socially um but he fluffed his lines a couple of times and we got terrible terrible giggles and that absurd stupid actor way of corpsing which is so hard to describe to, do i do i have either of you done any acting or not I haven't done acting, but I know what you mean of like the just giggles that will not stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard to articulate. In fact, the best, the best description of it was um, Ricky and Steve, Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant on the, on the extras of extras, um, uh, which I also had a small part in, but um, uh, uh, Steve talks about how frustrated he would get with Ricky corpsing on the office. I was like, look, we, you know, we're against the clock here. And then he said when he played that character, Darren Lamb, in Extras, he sort of had moments where he couldn't stop laughing. And he realised that, that corpsing is sort of a, a, a whole cavalcade of, of, of human emotions all happening at the same time. It's not really laughing. It's not that. It's kind of a, a absolute hysteria. It's like laughing at a funeral. It's the only kind of comparable thing. 
the, that something gets, you know, as the, the coffin's getting lowered into the ground, something amusing happens and you and your sister or your mother suddenly start shaking with laughter and it's the most inappropriate thing in the world. And I, I was remember being on the set, the Bond soundstage with 30 or 40 crew members standing around and Brendan fluffed a line and Judy and Rory Kinnear and me, Daniel wasn't on set by that time, he'd shot his stuff and he was out. But the, the rest of us were just shoulders kind of shaking with laughter. And it was so inappropriate and so ridiculous. But um, that's one of my abiding memories of filming, actually, is not being able to stop laughing. I would have to imagine, though, even if it's um, maybe not what the you know director and the crew is wanting in that moment, that it has to bond the cast together a bit. Yeah, it does. It does. And particularly when you're working with, with legends, you know, with Dame Judy and with Dan. Um, yeah, it, 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 it does. But... Uh, Mark Forster was a was a, a nice enough guy. He didn't give me, I think, a single word of direction the whole day, um, and was, uh, you know, I don't think he particularly saw the funny funny side of it. But I think if you're a director dealing with actors corpsing, you need to sort of meet it head on and 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 not just kind of tell them off because that makes it worse, of course. But just kind of laugh along and show a bit of sympathy and say, All right, let's have another go at it, you know, rather than yeah, <laughs> it's tricky. Well, you mentioned, um, I mean, speak to Mark Forster's point. I mean, he he had a lot of pressure with this film because he hadn't really done that kind of film before. It was a massive weight doing a Bond film. So I could see why he just wanted to get on with it. That that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But you mentioned like the, the legends that you're standing next to. Dan mm. was there. Dame Judy is there. Um, mm. I mean, you've done some films by this point. You've done some TV work as well, just looking at your filmography. But how was that room? I mean, that that's Dame Judy right there. How is that dealing with that sort of pressure? That's right. Well. Um, I was I was nervous about meeting Dan. Um, of course, he was absolutely charming, really, really sweet. He they shot his stuff quite early, and he was sort of apologetically sort of left the room and was called off to do some fight fight stunt work rehearsal. Um, and I couldn't really work out why. And then a friend pointed out, well, Bond is never in soft focus. He's never in the back of anyone else's shot. <laughs> yeah, of course, that makes sense. You're never going to have Bond. You're never going to be focused on me, but have Bond in the background type thing. Um, so that's why he's gone. Um, but he was absolutely charming. And Judy, I sort of had the feeling I would like because she's legendarily such a nice person. Also, she came up in theatre and, and, and I think theatre actors kind of sniff each other out a bit. And most, I mean, most British, big British movie stars, apart from, I mean, there are some like Colin Firth and... There are some who've got little theatre experience, but most most people do have some theatre experience. And you kind of there's a sort of unspoken language between you, which which, you know, there's a camaraderie or something. And Rory Kinnear, I know very well anyway. Um, he and I are, are, are close friends. We did a play together in about 2005. Um, and Brendan, as I say, I'd met before. So, um, yeah, so it was it was a nice atmosphere in the room, actually. Um, also, I do card magic. And I always have a deck of cards with me on a movie set. So I ended up doing some card tricks for Judy, um, which she enjoyed so much that she invited me to join her uh, when she was getting ready for the premiere of Quantum of Solace at the some posh hotel in Covent Garden. And I did some card tricks for her um, her grandson. <laughs> I wish I'd known this now. I would have asked you to brought a deck with you and you could do a trick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, save it for Dame Judy, I say. Yeah. She deserves it. But um Another thing jumped out to me, I went back and watched the scene today, is you have this uh, magical wizard digital table in front of you. That's, mm. um, I, I, I have to imagine all of that's post-production, but uh, how was it navigating that? 
Yeah, it was actually quite complicated. It was, um, um, it's it's the coolest gadget in the movie. Like that's that's that that's the takeaway from the scene, and that's what I kind of that's what I'm proud of. Um, it was like an enormous overhead projector. It was just a light box, you know. It was just a, it was a white light box. But I was called in to rehearse the scene the day before, and the kind of tech guy gave me a piece of sort of acetate with a little single dot in one corner, and said, "Right, so you're going to start here. You're going to tap it, and then." spin it around with your thumb and then you move to this point and and he drew a little kind of diagram for me and I remember going home that day and clearing off the dining room table and using a piece of A4 paper just kind of grabbing it and you know and the account was deposited here and money's gone here and and then this account here and practicing I must have practiced about 40 or 50 times because I knew that on the day I would just have to be incredibly slick um and um uh, yeah, so the, the, on the on the day there was nothing; it was just light, and then it all came in, obviously in post. And I would love to know in the in the scene, it's primarily an exposition scene, right? Where you have mm. to explain essentially how they're going to get to the next phase of the plot. Mm. As an actor, exposition can be like crushing. How do you communicate that in a way where the audience is sitting forward, as opposed to you know, kind of like, okay, yeah, here we go? Because I think you didn't, you genuinely pull it off. Oh, that's very kind. I mean, I. Uh, me and a lot of actors uh, uh, who do the same sort of work as me sometimes call ourselves kind of exposition in trousers, mm. you know, <laughs> and there's a lot of ways that filmmakers get exposition. I mean, you'll be familiar with this as, as, as key moviegoers and critics, but you know, the, the number of American cop shows where they go to a lap dancing bar and there's two girls lap dancing just to give the audience something. It sounds awful, <laughs> but give them something to look at while the two cops go, so tell me again, Eddie went back to the bar and he didn't know. Yeah, no, he gave the money to the guy. And there's the, these girls kind of winding away with snakes in the background so that you've got something to look at. Um, uh, so when I when I've I do a lot of kind of exposition in trousers kind of acting, um, it's just a question of sort of knowing knowing what your job is in a way in a way, your job is to be invisible. Do you know what I mean? In a way, if you suddenly feel, oh, I've got a great idea, I'm going to do the whole thing with a with a lisp, or or, or I'm going to I'm going to limp, or I'm going to give this character some sort of backstory. It's like, nah, nobody cares about this character. Your job is purely to get the information across as efficiently as you can. Uh, the camera is probably going to be on the other guy anyway, so just just do your job, you know. And I think as an actor, a lot of the time, you have to know when to leave your ego at the at the door. And I think if you're doing a part like this, you think, yeah, no one cares. No one, you know, this is not this is not a Mike Lee movie where you need to know the backstory and what this guy's parents are called and 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 what his childhood was like. You've just got to get that information across as efficiently and as clearly as possible. And you're probably going to have to do it 60 times. So don't get too bored of it, you know. <laughs> and how important is it when you're going through like exposition to have an actor like you have, you know, Dame Judi Dench here hmm. to play off of when you're actually delivering that information? Oh, I think it's important. And and um, a decent actor will give you an eyeline off camera, even when it's not their bit, you know. And you can always tell the actors who are a little bit too grand because they will they'll they'll do their bits first. And then when it's your turn to do your bit, they'll they'll find an excuse to go back to the trailer. and You'll end up doing it to a stand in. Um, but it's very rare that you hear those stories. And actually, actors will, will exchange stories about actors about film stars who've done that and haven't done that, you know. It's like, oh, I worked with Sean Connery and, you know, couldn't believe it. I, I, you know, it was my close-up and he was off camera and he, he 
you know, he was there for me the whole time. Oh God, I work with, I can't think of anyone now, but someone who just said, oh yeah, looked at the watch and said, I'm off now, bye. And, and uh, suddenly you're ending, you're doing it to some guy with a headset on and a, you know, a bobble hat or something. And you think, well, this is not, this is not helpful. So yeah, when the stakes are high, it's really nice to have the person that you're, that you're delivering the information to right there for you. Um, back into the quantum as well. One of the questions I had was um, just sort of looking at, you, you, we spoke about sort of the troubled production of the film and the, the script being in flux. And in since this film, David Daniel Craig has come out and said that he wrote lines for the film whilst on set. Now, I'm not saying you came up with some of your dialogue because it's actually quite exposition heavy. But was there any sense that you could change some of, this, you know, just the the, the thes and the ands and have any sort of input, or was it literally two script? Uh, I think, yeah, I think had there been something I felt it could have been rephrased, and I've done this, I think, on a couple of other films. I'd maybe just take the director to one side way before we started shooting and just saying, look, I, th I think it'd be better if I said it like this. Or um, it does make you think, you know. I've had conversations with other actors who've ended up adding lines to quite big, big movies. And, you know, getting a, getting a film made, as we know, takes years. And getting a script through, particularly through a studio with a big franchise like Bond, is just such a complicated process. So how it can land on the set with a kind of gaping error in it or a hole in it or something that grammatically just doesn't sort of work. It just frustrates me. It really confuses me. Um, there was, as you say, my stuff was very expositional. There was no need for me to really tweak anything. Uh, and I would have felt quite, I, would have, I wouldn't have been high status enough to probably suggest something unless it was sort of really obvious. So, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't add nothing. Well, one thing I, I, I wanted to ask about, because obviously your character is billed as Treasury Agent. Hmm. You, haven't, you haven't got a name. Oh, Did God. you ever add a name in your head? to the character did you give yourself that no something that that um something that they do in that lucasfilm always do lucasfilm always do is to very generously give all their actors character names or 95 percent of them so my one line in rogue one which was a lot more we shot a lot more but you know i ended up as lieutenant casido and that's my name and that's my when i go to conventions i get to say yes i played lieutenant casita in rogue one and thank you very much lucasfilm it's very kind of them to do that it wouldn't have taken much to call the treasury agent john smith you know or something it could have had a name um something that some friends of mine do is to <clears throat> i've got uh, a quite a successful friend who played a character where he was there was a, a, a london doctor and a new york doctor and he was just down as london doctor so he switched it to dr london <laughs> 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 Brilliant. On IMDb, he's Dr. London. Thanks very much. Yeah, that was that was my name in that. And I think he played someone called Male Nurse, and he changed that to Guy Nurse. Yeah, I'm just I'm just that's my name. It's Guy Nurse. It's like mm. <laughs> if you can get away with it, fair enough. Does that mean we're going to make you Mr. Treasure? Yeah, maybe. What could I What could I come up with? Tre um, Trevor Trevor Agent? No, no, something. I'll come up with something. Trevor Tre uh, Trevor Treasure. Go for alliterative. That's uh, there you go. A very strange <laughs> yeah. name, but uh, it, it's catchy. Well, I was curious because the exposition is very intentional in what it has to get across in that scene. But was there anything that was cut along the way, or did the scene play longer when you were filming it? No, I think I think it was all I think it all ended up in place actually, and um, there was one. 
a quite cool overhead shot which they did. I remember them setting up the the camera directly above us. In fact, it was this. It was the. It was the. It was a run at the scene in which we were giggling like idiots and corpsing, and uh, but I did all sorts of the big hand movements across the table. I think they ended up in the trailer. Uh, there's a kind of little shot of of all that stuff, um, and I should say actually that the movie itself has a pretty bad reputation amongst Bond fans, you know, and. I'm friends with a, a man called John Rain, who does the Smirsh Pod podcast that you may have come across. Mm-hmm. And he's incredibly rude about Quantum of Solace. I mean, he's he's a he's a real Bond expert, but he is unremittingly rude about Quantum. And um, we sort of joke about it because I, I, I don't know enough about the Bond movies to kind of contrast it. So, I mean, there are some clearly other very bad Bond movies, but I think Quantum of Solace is unfairly maligned. And I have... Having gone back to, I suppose I've watched it maybe two or three times in my life. I should probably go back to it again. My, my son's 11 and I'm sort of introducing him to Bond. So I might watch it with him sometime soon. But I think it's unfairly maligned. And there are some set pieces in it. The bit in the uh, the opera house where they're all listening, having the the meeting on their headsets. And there's an assassin, all that sort of thing. I think that's a, an extraordinary scene. I think it's brilliant. And a couple of the fight scenes that they're very born, they're very kind of born movie, mm-hmm. I, you know, um, uh, inspired clearly by Bourne, but um, I think there are some really good moments in it, and I think it's I think it is slightly unfairly maligned. I have to say. Well, it's one of the ones that's had the most reappraisals over the years. Yeah, it really does feel like yeah. there's a real group out there championing Quantum, and I think Scott and I recorded our review for the film, and we both found a lot to love in it. Mm. Like it may be not as you know confident out of the gate as say like Casino Royale, the you know the two years before. But there's a lot to love in Quantum of Solace, and I think that's why it's getting more and more visits. And if you go back to the Blu-ray, I would like you to note that um, your hands are one of the chapter stop images. Well, mm. that's something for the great, isn't it? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, think, I think it's. I think it's like an incredibly bad title, and I think when they announced the title Quantum of Solace, everyone. There was that very funny Adam and Joe parody where they kind of sang the songs in which they couldn't swantum the, the something of Boris, the swantum of Qualis, you know, <laughs> um, terrible title. There's no doubt about it. But then as you get used to it, you know, 10, 15 years pass and it's just quantum and it's quantum and you kind of forget how bad a title it is, if you see what I mean. And also the opening song by Jack White and Alicia Keys. First time you hear it, you're like, that's not a very good song. But I've heard that song so many times. It's now on my kind of one of my playlists I listen to regularly. And I love it. I, it's a great, it's a great Bond theme. And Jack White is an incredible musician, and he plays the hell out of that Rickenbacker and plays those Bond chords. And it's 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 a great track. But on first listen, it's like ah, eh, you know. Well, tying it into what you mentioned about sort of Star Wars and and the conventions you've you've been to, mm. the legacy of being in a Bond film. Uh, we had Joseph Milson on recently talking about uh, Casino Royale and 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 his. Sort of brief time in that and his legacy and going to conventions and doing that sort of thing afterwards. What have you found post quantum? Obviously, you mentioned a smirch pod there. Obviously, you're talking to us about it today, but you know, have, have you found that the film keeps coming up for you since? Um, yeah, in a way, it's actually it's quite a small group of us who've been in Bond and Star Wars. I've realized, um, there was a kind of Twitter thing about it the other day. It was like, oh, who's been in both? And I mean, I've had a tiny part in in both really but there aren't many actors who've done who've done big parts in both um and uh to be honest when i've I've only done a few conventions and i did them sort of when rogue one came out in about 2016 
and maybe the year after, and there was quite a lot of heat around it because everybody enjoyed it so much as a movie. So most of the people I've kind of encountered at conventions have been have been um, Star Wars fans rather than Bond fans. But I think, I think as Cam was saying, there is there's just a there's a there's a real affection for Quantum of Solace, and it gets reappraised quite a lot. And I'd be very interested to see down the line in ten years' time how we look at it in you know comparison to. I mean, it'll never be as good as Casino Royale or possibly Skyfall, but Spectre was the other one that people, you know, the other Daniel Craig film that people didn't like very much. Um, and I wonder how it'll be viewed alongside. I don't think the dust has really settled on No Time to Die just yet. I don't think people have quite decided whether they liked that ending or not. So maybe, yeah, in a yeah. couple of years' time, they'll go, actually, Quantum, hey. Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. Um, but moving on from Quantum, we sort of skipped over your, you mentioned it earlier, your first sort of major motion picture, which was Spy Game, a film that me and Cam mm-hmm. love very much. How did you get connected with that film? Yeah, that was, um, God, yeah, 2001. And uh, Lucinda Sison was casting it and got me in uh, to read. And then I went in the following week and met Tony Scott. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it was one or two or maybe three days. But I, I yeah, in um, Shepparton, I think. Um, I'm working with Bob Redford. I mean, my God, that was that was amazing. He was charming. He was kind. Uh, I was very nervous and I was playing an American. There was a there was a, a, a dialect coach helping me with that, but she was dialect coaches can be quite on you, you know, and she would kind of scuttle up to me at the end of each take and kind of give me some advice or whisper things. And it was, it was, it was a it becomes off-putting if you know at a certain point and you get quite anxious. But Bob was absolutely charming. Tony Scott was, you know, he was he, he was he was very nice, but he had that kind of that sort of chippy thing that sometimes he's from Newcastle or South Shields, I think. And he was like, you know, he'd say, all right, we're going again. Cause Rufus messed it up. All right, come <laughs> on. And he gave me a wink and I go, <laughs> and uh, I realized that he, he, he thrived on being, if I spoke back to him, you know, it's like, well, shut up, Tony. If you hadn't told me this, I wouldn't have done it. He's like, Oh, all right. Not bad. He can give as good as he can get, you know, that sort of thing. And I never get on well with people like that. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm far too nice and polite, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't give it both barrels to Tony Scott in front of everybody else. Um, so um, yeah, I was very nervous, but Bob really put me at ease, and all my stuff was with him, really. Um, so, and I'm so glad you guys liked the movie. I, I, I think it's one of those movies I, when I, I did a play a few years afterwards, and someone came to see it who'd served with special forces, and in fact, he's one of the coolest guys I'd ever met. He was. I think he was in the SAS. He left the SAS and he'd gone into hostage negotiation in South America. So he was he was the guy that would speak to the head of the drug cartel in order to get them to the, release the ambassador's daughter. He Jack Bauer, basically. Yeah. Um, and when he didn't do that, to unwind, he'd just work as a gaucho in Argentina. So he was just a sort of cowboy. So when he wasn't being Jack Bauer, he was being a cowboy. And I was like, you're the coolest guy I've ever met. And he was like, yeah, but you were in Spy Game tell me about Spy Game. And I was like, well, did a couple of days at Shepparton and I was 26 and it was really good fun. But tell me more about being a hostage negotiator <laughs> in South American <laughs> drug business. It was like, no, I want to talk about Spy Game. And we, I did, we did that thing that people often do with actors, which is sort of getting a bit overexcited about what ended up being a day's work 20 years ago, you know, and he's, and, and he's got a far more interesting life, but he wants to talk about my life and I want to talk about his. So, you know, that's the way it goes. But I think Spy Game's a great movie and I, I'm thrilled that you guys like it so much because I think it's terrific. 
Yeah, definitely. And I would love to know, you know, you talk about Tony Scott as like a personality, but he's someone who like in the years kind of really following his death has been reappraised as like one of the great visionary directors of his time. I would just like to know from a process point of view, what it was like being directed by him. Yeah, I think he's been unfairly overshadowed by his brother. I mean, who, let's face it, made, has made some bad movies as well as, of course, the, the good movies he's made are far better than, than Tony Scott's best movies, you know, Blade Runner and Alien and, and, and so on. But um, you know, like Prometheus or whatever, you know, they're not, they're not all hits. They're not all great movies. And Tony was never the visionary his brother was. He was much more of a kind of workhorse of a director, but a great storyteller. And yeah, I can't remember very much of my time on set. I mean, again, it wasn't quite exposition in trousers, but it wasn't far off. In fact, I was the, I was the other, one of my other archetypes, which is um, uh, a, a friend of mine says he always plays unsuspecting husbands in things. <laughs> and I was, I was almost that, you know, I'm like kind of, I played a lot of hap hapless bureaucrats, guy, you know, guys who are kind of pushing pens around while something much more interesting happens in the background, and then they're sort of unaware of it. And that beat is what the movie needs to move on, you know, some guy who gets easily fooled. Um, so I've played a few of those. Um, and uh, yeah, now I can't remember much about Tony's process, but I remember him being a, a kind of a, a pretty affable guy, I guess. Well, you mentioned that you uh, needed a dialect coach, but you you just took me back to you know Alfida saying pet there with Tony Scott accent. That was uh, that that felt very <laughs> very natural there. That was very well done. Thank you. I'm very good at uh, well. I've always been quite good at accents, which which used to be incredibly useful. It's less so now because if you're if if they're going to cast an Irish guy, they want an Irish guy. They're going to get an Irish guy rather than the guy who could do a good Irish accent. You know, so it's useful in certain circumstances, but not as much as it used to be. <laughs> Well, the the question I had sort of left for Spy Game um, is you, you mentioned uh, Bob Redford, Tony Scott, you, you're there, but this is you know, your first major motion picture. Is there anything you did to sort of pick their brains? Did you take a moment to try and talk to those sort of leaders of the film industry around you? Or were you just sort of there and just taking it in? Yeah, I was. I was. I was standing next to to Bob and trying to just trying to think of something interesting to say. You know, I remember. Um, it was it was a, a classic example of seeing how a, a big budget movie works because we were standing in uh, Larry Brigman was the actor whose office who was my boss in the movie you know I think he's the head of the CIA and um, Bob had a scene with Larry where he would say do you remember when all, the, all this used to mean something all of this and he gestures around the room and um, he took Tony to one side Bob Redford took Tony Scott to one side it was like because there were pictures of like racehorses along the walls because it was a posh paneled office and he was saying uh tony do you think we could have something else uh could the art guys do something because i i kind of say do you think what you remember when all this used to mean something all, all of this and i'm if i'm gesturing and it's and we're seeing the room it'd be nice to have something else and i swear within 15 minutes every framed picture of a racehorse or a uh whatever it was was replaced with ex-presidents <laughs> and a, 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 an american flag and you know something else and suddenly the room felt different and the art department you know on movies like that can just in 15 minutes they will totally redress a room and uh but and tony was like bob's up better and bob looked right, yeah 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 i'll do that's cool that's great that's great and then we shot the scene you know so it's just one of those things that and i just remember watching it with my eyes on stalks thinking wow this is this is the kind of this is the movie this is the world we're in now you know it's where stuff like this just happens and also i, I suppose i learned Something I have learned as an actor is that there are certain choices that you need to make sometimes as an actor um, 
to, to make the environment around you suit you a little bit better that aren't about you being difficult. They're about you making, trying to make the story clearer. And sometimes you feel a bit, I did an episode of Outlander um, a few years ago and uh, I had to arrest uh, Sam Hewen's character and give someone else a bag of money for betraying him basically. And um, I didn't have any, sounds really trivial, but I didn't have any pockets in my costume. So I had to come on with this bag of money in my hand like an idiot. And then handing the money over is meant to be a big reveal at the end of the scene, like this woman or this man has betrayed him and this woman has betrayed him and I'm, I'm paying her. And I said, you know, is there any way I can conceal this money? Otherwise I'm walking on with the money in my hand. And they were like, yeah, well, you haven't got any pockets, so that's tough. And I was like, well, could someone, could, please, could someone fix this? And they were like, well, not really, because you haven't got any pockets. And I was like, no, can someone fix this? Can someone fix this so that this isn't a problem for me and a problem for the story? And I had to slightly kind of pull, pull rank. And then I could see them going, oh, oh, oh. And 50 minutes later, I had a little hook on the bag and a little button inside my coat. And I was able to conceal this bag. And this sounds like a trivial story, but it was just an example of, as an actor, realizing I've got a bit of agency here and I'm not number one on the call sheet, but I'm trying to help the story be a little bit better here. And I need you to help me on this. And I'm going to slightly insist on it because that's what needs to happen right now in this in this performance this you know this just needs to we need to step up a little bit and i need to slightly push in order to make that happen so i suppose watching bob make this decision about what paintings we have hanging in the panel office made me just planting a seed to think oh, yeah it's okay to kind of flag up something you think might be a problem but you've got, always got to know your i guess you've always got to know your place and if you if you start there's nothing more embarrassing than watching a young actor approach a director and go why don't we do it like this? And you're going, no, 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 not your job, not your job, know your place, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, we've um, we had the cinematographer from Spy Game, Dan Mindell, on the show a while back now, mm. and it, it, that what you told me about uh, Bob Redford, their tracks completely to what he told us as well. Like his influence was there. He was a director in his own right, um, and he you know gave his advice where he could to improve the film. I think it speaks to the finished product. Mm, yeah, definitely. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Enforcer and Muscle Beach Party episodes are live and tune in in December. It's going to be plenty of festive fun as we celebrate the holidays spy hard style. And if that sounds delicious then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spy but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy jinx well in the galaxy far far away from james bond perhaps one of the other biggest franchises of all time you've also popped aboard a star destroyer i think or two or certainly one mm -hmm. it didn't end well but uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know in terms of, we didn't mention Star Wars off the top, but was that a, an important franchise to you growing up as well? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, again, not I, I've never been um, an obsessive, but uh, came out in 77. I was three. And yeah, growing up, it, it, it meant a great deal to me, the first three films. And then I was in my 20s when the prequels came out and that kind of all the hype and the hype and the hype and then the kind of crushing disappointment. Um, and then I think A Force Awakens, I really loved. I was really excited about that. And then um, to get a chance to be in Rogue One, I mean, I can't remember exactly the order, but it feels like Rogue One was the first sort of spin-off one that wasn't part of the one, two, three, four, five, six. Is that right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. So describing it, I mean, God, I wasn't really allowed to talk about it with anybody, but describing it to people, it was like, well, no, I'm in one that's sort of about the plans to steal the Death Star plans, but it, it, it's sort of, it's not part of the main canon type thing. And people were like, oh, okay, you know, it sounds a bit like a, people didn't know what to make of it. And what I think, what I say now, I mean, and it's a shorthand and it's it's a bit lame, but I, I say, you know, that I was in the kind of the worst of the recent Bond movies, that, but the best of the recent Star Wars movies. I genuinely think Rogue One is up there with 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 Empire and with, um, um, uh, I think it's better than any of the other, than, than the uh, Last Jedi or Force Awakens. You know, I think, I think it's great. It makes a really, really strong film. So thrilled to be in it, even with a tiny, tiny part. It very much has, I think at the time it was seen as a bit of a like novelty movie because it was outside of the regular, you know, Skywalker stories. Mm. But generally you tend to see now polls when they ask what's the best of the modern Star Wars era. Rogue One is the one that typically gets mentioned the most. So yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. It's interesting how in both Bond and in, you know, Rogue One, you've been featured in movies that were very, you know, reconsidered and reevaluated as the years went past. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with that. Yeah, it's also it's also interesting to note yours uh, of the Star Wars films is the only one to receive its own sort of show on Disney Plus because now you've got the Andor show, uh, which is all set yeah. before. So technically, your character is still alive. Great, you <laughs> thank you for telling me that. I should write to someone, shouldn't I? So I'm curious, you know, when you talk about getting hired on Bond, I think a lot of people have this, you know, picture of when you go in for a Bond movie, it's this big flashy affair as opposed to, you know, the reality. What was it like going in for Star Wars? Was it similar to the Bond experience? Well, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the Bond was pre all the NDA stuff that we have to do now. Um, and uh, so going in for Rogue One was was a... It was a process of, of, it was so bizarre, you know, it was kind of a call from agents saying, look, Gina Jay is casting this movie and it's, we think it's probably the new, the new Star Wars, but, but she's not allowed to say, and we're not allowed to say, and the sides we're going to send you to look at won't be the sides um, on the, on the day. Uh, I mean, of the actual part that you're playing. Also, we can't send you any sides. You'll have to go to Twickenham Studios and I live in Walthamstow, which is Northeast London. So I had to go to Southwest London and I had to sit in a, a room with someone watching me as I looked at these sides, they were printed on red paper, just in case I would try and photocopy them or photograph them, they wouldn't really come up clearly. So it's black ink on red paper. And I read this and I had, I had, I think, 20 minutes to learn this scene, literally sit there and learn it. And then I had to go in front of a camera and do it <clears throat> for Gina, who then sent the tape off to, to Gareth Edwards. Um, and then I think I had a call saying you've been offered it, but they want to, they want to, they want you to go to Twickenham again to read the scene that you'll actually be doing this time, and it'll be the actual lines, and then you can decide whether or not you want to say yes. And I was like, well, <laughs> okay. So I went all the way to Twickenham. Someone else passed me a piece of paper and stood over me as, as I read it to make sure I didn't take a photograph of it or anything like that. And that was kind of set the tone for the day because 
I've, I've also, I did a movie called Assassin's Creed. Well, it was the, the Assassin's Creed, again, which is a little bit better than, than people say, I think. Um, and there were similar levels of sort of mania around, we must not let the actors actually read the whole script of this in case they, I don't know what they think we're going to do, you know, try and sell it on eBay, try and flog the secrets to somebody. It's never going to happen. Anyway, even on the day when we were filming Rogue One, we were given our sides on red paper in a, a kind of miniature form that sat in a lanyard around our neck, a clear plastic lanyard. So we had to carry our lines around with us and have them signed in and signed out at the end of the day. And the journey from the trailer to the set, we had to cover us cover ourselves in black kind of cloaks that covered our heads because there were drones overhead trying to take pictures and they didn't want to, you know, let on who was, it was, the levels of secrecy are so absurd. Um, and I have to say it reaches the point where it wasn't so much the case on Rogue One because I knew there was never going to be a, case, a chance of me to read the whole thing. But on Assassin's Creed, I was doing reshoots because there were problems with the movie and they needed someone to wear a pair of trousers and do some exposition. Uh, so it fell to me as it often does. But no one told me anything about the film. And when they finally sent me the sides, I was literally trying to guess what the whole movie was about and what the plot was. And I ended up turning to one of the extras on set and going, are we, are we, are we goodies or are we sort of bad guys? Why? I'm putting Michael Fassbender into a thing and I'm picking him up and spinning him around. Why am I doing that to torture him? Am I doing it because he's asked me to? <laughs> you know what I mean? And the, the worst thing about the secrecy uh, about modern movie, I had a friend who auditioned for a Marvel movie and he was trying to get his iPad back into its case. And by mistake, he pressed the hold button and the home button at the same time and took a screenshot. And within 10 minutes, he had an email from one of the assistant producers saying, you're not allowed to take screenshots of this script. And within 20 minutes, he had a phone call saying, you are not allowed to take screenshots of the script. He was like, I was trying to put it back in its case. I'm really sorry. I wasn't, you know. They, so they want us to learn the lines and they want us to engage as, as much as we can in the story. But at the same time, they're not telling us what the story is or who we're playing or what the stakes are. You think, look, I'm not a fan. I'm not a, I'm not a kind of, do you know what I mean? I'm not someone who's trying to kind of get anything. I'm literally in, I'm in, I'm in this. I'm in the story. I'm trying to be part of the story in order to tell it as effectively as I can. And you're hobbling me by reducing the amount of the world that I can actually see. And you're just shrinking it down to this one scene and we have this with auditions all the time. We have to, we're sent one scene and we have to sort of invent for ourselves the world around it. And we're constantly referring to characters that we don't know about. So it can be quite complicated and quite frustrating to try and kind of do your, the best you can to convincingly slide into this world, even though you don't know anything about it. So, yeah. It seems very counterproductive to getting like an organic performance from an actor when you're making them jump through so many hoops just to get to the stage. Yeah, it, it can be. And and it speaks of a certain lack of trust, you know, and, you know, here, here, are, here are all the serial numbers that you need. You've got to download the app. And then once you've downloaded the app, here are the serial numbers you need to access the script. But you mustn't, you can only open it at one device. So you better decide now if you're going to use your iPad or your, or your phone, because you can't use it. And if you don't look at the screen for more than uh, 30 seconds, it will go blank and you have to put the serial numbers in again. And don't screenshot it and don't print it out. And don't, you know, it's like, well, just, just, you know what I mean? I'm not expecting some 
benign person to turn up with a freshly painted printed script but try not to make it so hard for us because we are trying to we're trying to do our best for you and to and to do the best job we can and it, you're just making it harder you know mm-hmm. and rogue one famously went through you know some reshoots to get to the final form it's in now when you were working on the movie did gareth edwards shoot all of your material interestingly no he didn't he uh the day i turned up um I was working with this actor, Michael Gould, who's playing Admiral Gorin, and Gareth kind of uh, kind of blocked it out. And then he apologized very deeply and said, look, I'm really sorry, but <clears throat> this is going to be sort of second unit today. And first unit, he didn't tell me at the time, but it was something Guy Henry was doing as the Peter Cushing uh, legacy character. Um, and they were doing that on, the, on another soundstage. And so we were left with... Um, the first assistant director, whose name I can't even remember, who essentially directed us. I mean, he had a monitor, Gareth had a monitor of what we were doing on our set. And so, um, and I would get notes back, oh, Gareth has just watched it and said, blah, blah, blah. Um, But no, he wasn't literally behind the camera on our stuff. Um, And we shot, you know, we shot uh, quite quite a lot more than there was. And I was really disappointed. I mean, I was thrilled to, to make it into the movie at all, but disappointed that, the quite long scene we'd shot had all gone, but you know you get used to this in movies, and you know it happens all the time. But it was it was a shame. Well, I, I'd be remiss. I mean, obviously, if NDAs are restricting this sort of thing, that's absolutely fine. But mm-hmm. of the stuff you did shoot, you say it was a, a loss to not see it. But could you just sort of talk us through what you did, and, and we could sort of maybe just fill in in our heads? Yeah, I, I, it was. Oh God, I can't remember much of it, but I remember uh, rebel ships kind of appearing out of hyperspace, and. Uh, Kind of doing something but that's impossible those are rebel ships and then um uh i think our ship was sort of being worked on by mechanics or something so it was like we've got to leave the ship we can't it's being worked on if we're docked we're vulnerable um yeah but we're not we're not fit we can't move or something i think they cut all of that all of that stuff or the whole idea of it being kind of being unable to move you know um mm-hmm. and then yeah, lots of X-wing attacks. I do remember the one it was one of the first times on set that I felt totally thrilled to be on a Star Wars set was because it was all sort of sinking in. You walk onto the black shiny floors and you're wearing the very very tight green uniform and all that, and it does get quite exciting. But it wasn't until the first AD said, "Right, okay, so uh, Rufus, I'm going to have you on your mark there, and then uh, I'll shout action, and then a couple of beats later, I'll shout X-wing, and that's and I need you to duck, just hit the floor as soon as you can." I was like, "Oh my." god someone's literally going to shout i'm at work i'm at work and someone's going to shout the words x-wing and i have to do something and that is that was a moment of real the little 10 year old version of me was like oh my god that's exciting <laughs> but interestingly what you say about the reshoot sorry quickly alistair alistair petrie is a good friend of mine who you should do your podcast and i'm sure would if you asked him mm, yeah who plays the head of the rebels in rogue one he's also in um uh, sex education and he's in a american show called deep state i think he's great anyway but he like me turns up in a lot of these sorts of films to kind of give information across and i think he really benefited from the reshoots because they suddenly thought gosh there's loads more we need to do with the rebels planning what they're going to do and we need a lot more sort of exposition about why they're doing what they're doing and it fell to alistair to kind of sell a lot of that story and he ended up with an absolutely terrific part and, you know, quite rightly so, has had a great career ever since. But it, it, 
sometimes you go into a movie like that with a smallish part and then suddenly because you because you are in the right story you're in the storyline that needs beefing up and you're a character who can effectively kind of clarify things you end up with a lot more to do you know and it's it's great when that happens you know and i guess your star wars journey wasn't over because you ended up doing voices in battlefront 2 as well after rogue one that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember very much about that because I do quite a lot of video game stuff. And a lot of it is just get down, move, get, get <laughs> out, get out, grenade, whatever, you know, and you end up doing a lot of kind of war cries and then five versions of being stabbed, five versions of stabbing someone. Uh, can we do a version where you get you, you get set on fire and then scream? Can we do a version where you get set on fire and then jump into a river and then feel relief or whatever you know, I do a lot of that sort of video game work so yeah Battlefront was not one I remember particularly well but it was nice to still be part of the world I guess and, and with Andor now there's uh, every chance you could be back yeah that's, uh, that's right as I say I need to I need to get busy uh, and start writing letters and saying look Casido's not dead yet <laughs> let's you know let's find out a little bit more about Lieutenant Casido's early career Hey, hey. <laughs> okay. these days anything can happen now the last film I wanted to tackle is a very recent film uh, Operation Mincemeat, especially a film I, I really love. Just I like sort of mm. retellings of history in, in sort of the spy realm, and also I quite like the Ian Fleming of that film. I find it quite interesting as well. But yeah, um, but just from your perspective, uh, looking at the the past three spy roles we've ta- spoken about with Spy Game, with Bond, with Rogue One, they're all fantasy. They're they're made up. Whereas you know Operation Mincemeat is fundamentally based off of real life. There's some slight changes but what was that like and, and sort of in comparison to your other roles that was a thrill it was a it was a, a straight offer which is always a, a, a real pleasure um uh please come and, and and play this part and i play a lot of soldiers um on stage and on film i'm always you know partly because of my military background um and um uh, it was a story i knew a little bit i don't think i'd seen the man that never was or i've watched it since um but ben mcintyre i love his writing and agent zigzag would make an incredible film um uh so yeah i was thrilled to do it and we shot it in february 2020 i think just before uh covid just before lockdown uh very lucky really i think it wrapped days before that march you know that kind of you know that date in march where it all stopped um and i'm enormously proud of the movie and i'm thrilled that you like it because i think it's a terrific war movie and very clear storytelling and even though you know the ending you're kind of rooting for the characters and um john badden's a wonderful director um and it was the first time i'd ever done that sort of i mean i've with Rogue One, it was, it was um, you know, the whole stage was on a big gimbal, so it was kind of tilting back and forth, which was very exciting. But um, the submarine uh, c- scenes we filmed in Twickenham Studios, which is one of the oldest studios in London, it's quite small, really. And I filmed it metres away from where I'd auditioned for Rogue One, and literally metres <laughs> where I'd auditioned from Rogue One and uh, other things. Uh, so it was, um, it was great to, to film. It was great to film that. It was an absolute thrill. Did you find yourself sort of diving into the backstory of the sort of Operation Mincemeat story, or did you just sort of just do the role, as it were? Yeah, no, I did. I mean, um, it's always a question, I think, for actors about how much research they do. And for me, it's always a question of doing doing all the research I can and then constantly going back to the text. 
um, because it's no, if you find something in your research which clashes with the text, mm -hmm. then you're sort of in trouble because you can't really change the text. If it's a new, maybe it's a new piece of writing, either on stage or on film, you can maybe approach the writer and go, well, I'm not sure about what you've written here because it turns out that he, you know, he had an obsession with this or blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, 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 I've read the book of Operation Mincemeat, obviously, and then um, I found out as much as I could about Bill Jewell, who I was playing, and funnily enough, uh, his great grandson or great or granddaughter reached out to me on Instagram and said, oh, you're playing my, I don't know how she found out, but you're, you're playing my great grandfather. He was a wonderful man and blah, blah, blah. And it was clear that everyone had a lot of affection for this man. And he was a fascinating character as well, Bill Jewell himself. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's all about doing any research that, that I find interesting and, and sort of fun and I think will inform what I'm doing. Um, but at the same time, always going back to the text and if it clashes, kind of reconciling that with myself and thinking, well, I can't, you know, um, uh, I've just got to do the best I can with it. Um, yeah. Is there a lot of responsibility when you're going in to play a real person like that? And how do you kind of liberate yourself from that responsibility to just, you know, tackle the role? Um, there is, yeah. And, and I mean, I've played characters who, it's always important as an actor not to have an attitude towards the character you're playing because no one, no one really thinks they're a bad guy type thing. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I've played, mm -hmm. played David Cameron and Tony Blair in this play, The Audience with Helen Mirren. Um, on the in the West End and on Broadway, and I quite like Blair, and I can't stand Cameron. But it's no good me thinking, oh well, this is my attitude. You know, you can't have an attitude towards the person you're playing. You only ever play the truth and how you feel. So, but it's a huge sense of responsibility when you're playing someone. In a way, it's there's more responsibility when you're playing someone who's never really been depicted on screen before. I mean, I suppose in the Man Who Never mm -hmm. Was, Bill Jewell was depicted, but no one else knows who bill jewel is do you know what i mean he's just he was just a a, a, a naval officer in the war who happened to have appeared in this kind of extraordinary story so i knew very well that all his his um uh the generations that followed him would be watching his family would be watching and thinking oh how's this how are they going to betray grandfather bill so that is a responsibility um and yeah i mean you 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 yeah, you do the research you can and you and you try not to take an attitude towards the character you're playing, but you're aware that you're aware that it might have some sort of, yeah, that there's always going to be freight. There's always going to be weight attached to what you're doing. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree personally. I, I've, we've had Ben McIntyre on the show. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of his book and he's another spy show coming out soon that I quite enjoyed, which is coming soon. Um, but let's just sort of sort of as we wrap up now the question because you've got so many spy characters you've tackled mm. i need to ask you who would win in a fight between you've got your spy game bond you've got uh you've got rogue one you've got operation minspeak put them four in a fight who's going to be the best spy god it's, who's who's up in the fight was it or basically all of your characters you've played so the so all the characters i've played obviously yeah wow um god well spy game would get nowhere he was just a kind of pen pusher wasn't he really um <laughs> i like to think lieutenant casido had a backstory but with only one line we'll never really know how much how much of a backbone he had um uh, uh the treasury agent i think was more of a sort of policy wonk really um and a, and a uh, yeah so i think it would have to be bill jewel because he was a proper 
Second World War naval officer with a with a with a roll neck and a and a and a and a sassy attitude. Yeah, so Bill Jeweler would kick, kick all their asses, I think, probably. I love it. It's a good answer. That's what I would have picked. Um, and then just one thing we'd like to ask when we have actors on the show. Um, is there something from your back catalogue, from your filmography, that you think people should go and check out? It could be sort of recorded stage work you've done or films, TV, something that you know didn't get the love you think it deserved? Yes. The thing that the job that I'm proudest of, I think, of the last few years was uh, was a BBC PBS co-production called Eight Days to the Moon and Back. That was a 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. Uh, and it was a sort of drama doc reconstruction of the of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And it was made on an absolute shoestring uh, by the BBC Science Unit. And it's an hour and a half long kind of TV movie. And it ended up getting a BAFTA nomination, an Emmy nomination, uh, a Rose Door nomination. And, you know, it was it was fated all over the world. And it's a beautiful, beautiful film. We basically lip synced to the original audio from the Apollo 11 space mission. Um, so I played Neil Armstrong and I got to say, you know, one small step for man, all that sort of thing. Uh, but they cut it with all the archive footage from Mission Control and all Walter Cronkite giving the, the TV coverage and all that sort of thing. It occasionally pops up on on uh, iPlayer because they show it quite a lot on the BBC. And, mm. But you can get it on Prime as well, I think. It's part of a kind of 50th anniversary moon landing package. But I became kind of obsessed with the well, obsessed with the moon landings afterwards and fascinated by the energy and courage and and resourcefulness of those men and women who, who who got man on the moon it was just breathtaking i'm just looking at a picture of you in the capsule oh uh, there we go yeah yeah good shot there yeah we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes below so everyone can go check that out right um and so what are you working on currently what, what what's going on with you i've had a kind of theater year really i did i did a play called the corn is green at the national theater uh with nicola mm -hmm. walker which was a play about uh welsh coal mining uh, community and then uh followed immediately by much ado about nothing which i played leonardo um so that was fantastic and that finished in september i've done a little bit on endeavor you know the um the mm -hmm. uh, uh, detective drama and um waiting to hear about one or two other things which may happen before the end of this year or at the beginning of next year but um i flipped to my my other career which is as a painter portrait painter um and if you put a link to my Instagram, I would be grateful, which is at Rufus G. Wright, in which you can see my um, my um, my work as a portrait artist, which is um, keeping me quite busy as well. Consider it done. Yeah, consider it done. Well, the final question we have for you, and everyone has been asked this from John Glenn to Nicholas Meyer, everyone on the show. Mm. Rufus Wright, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? Now, it's a really hard question to ask, and I'm going to slightly cheat <laughs> that's fine you will not be the first <laughs> well a really old one and i know you've talked about uh well a really old one and a very a very recent one one is 39 steps and i know actually i listened to a bit of your your coverage of the the, the 50s remake of 39 steps but i'm talking mm -hmm. about the 30s one um i played hannay in the west end adaptation of the 39 steps which is more of an adaptation of the film than of the book um right but loved playing hannay and loved uh Love the, the donut film, just gorgeous. And the recent one is, and again, I think you've spoken to Dominic Cook, who directed The Corn is Green, the player at the National, but The Courier, I think it's a fantastic movie. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of spy movies that are about ordinary, it's usually men, let's face it, <clears throat> be nice if it was more women, but um, Cumberbatch playing, you know, a salesman who ends up 
being a spy. And that's as engaging, I think, as the highly trained, you know, Walter PPK, uh, you know, kind of ruthless assassin. I think the guy who sort of ends up doing it because he gets a hand on the shoulder in his club and then ends up, you know, becoming a fully fledged spy is as much of an interesting story, if, if not more so. And I think the courier handles that sort of a- aspect of the spy world brilliantly. The, the kind of the, the poor nebbish guy who had no idea what he was getting himself into and then ends up in a gulag, you know, and all of that. And I just think I think it's I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's a harrowing performance from Benedict. And I think you know, people people always think they want to be James Bond. And of course, you'd want to be James Bond, but you're more likely to be Benedict Cumberbatch's character from The Courier because you're just a normal bloke or woman doing yeah. your life and then someone makes you a spy all of a sudden. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I think, far more interesting. Exactly, exactly. Because it could happen to any of us. And um, I think all of us have had those fantasies where we think, gosh, maybe maybe it'll be me. Maybe, maybe I'll get the hand on the shoulder and, and someone will say, you know, you're the man. Scott, we need you now. We need you to go to, we need you to, go to Moscow and uh, <laughs> <laughs> ring from the... It sounds official when you say it. Actually, there's, there's, there's like an air of uh, importance in your voice there. I like it. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I I think that that that's us. I, it's it. We could do this for hours because you've got so many films that we could talk about, and there's so much more we could dive into. But it's always interesting to hear from someone who was in the film we're talking about of the week, which was Quantum. So thank you, Rufus, for your time. We'll put links to, of course, your Instagram in the show notes below, as well as the movie you mentioned as well. But Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Mr. Rufus Wright. Thank you very much indeed, guys. It's been a pleasure talking to you. No, the pleasure's been all ours. Thank you so much. And we're back. That was our chat with Mr. Rufus Wright. Rufus, again, well, thank you for your time. It was a wonderful chat and lovely to hear some insights about a film that, as we said earlier in the week, I think deserves a little bit of a reappraisal. Definitely. And I thought it was really interesting to talk to someone who plays kind of a utility scene. Um, you know, explaining exposition to, you know, Bond and um, M at MI6 and getting kind of an inside look at the kinds of scenes you don't hear talked about. Like when you talk to people generally about Bond movies, they're going to talk about, like, say, the bungee jump in Goldeneye or something like that. And what I really found interesting was sort of more of the examination of kind of the, you know, character driven information scenes that, let's be honest, they make up a huge section of Bond movies. And a, a very large portion of Quantum of Solace, because all it really has is action sequences and exposition sequences that really get you through the film. So it's it, it's a it's a hard task to ask someone to come in and deliver this, you know, with meaning. I think he does a good job in in the film, and we sort of detailed that in the interview, where you know an actor turns up and really has to bring life to what is basically this is what happened. You need to go here and do that. Yeah, and there's that old saying, very old saying, there's no small parts, only small actors, mm. and that you can bring life to any moment. Because, I mean, we've all watched movies where, you know, like a small character actor part really pops and everyone walks out and goes, who was that guy? Like, it really, st- you know, stands out in that moment. And, like, I think that's something the Bond movies traditionally do really, really well, which is populate the entire cast with memorable faces and character types mm-hmm. and uh, I just thought this was really interesting to hear from someone who you know just from the process of getting hired shooting with like you know a legendary actress like Dame Judi Dench I thought his whole story was really interesting and not the type of Bond story that you know I think fans are used to hearing over and over again no absolutely it's, it's nice to have a, a different perspective and a different voice uh, from the Bond sort of 
a list of actors that have been in sort of or bomb royalty, I suppose you would call them. And you know, I was also quite interested to hear about the the mechanics of the digital board that he had to deal with. I, I know it's all quite you know blink and you'll miss it in a way, but nowadays that's very easy to show and there's all sorts of technology though you'd have like the screens you can interact with but this was shot in 2008 2007 that technology was there but it was exceedingly expensive so this had to have been done post production which is we confirmed it was so he had to memorize like a hand maneuver and you you hear that he's like practicing it the night before that's very old school cinema of like putting things together and it was just nice to hear what went into it yeah, and Rufus has a pretty extensive theater background. And so I think like a lot of that sort of skill set would go into pulling off a moment like this and making it look effortless. Plus, apparently the um, card magic, I would imagine the uh, sleight of hand would be quite handy in pulling off this sort of sequence. Yeah, it's a shame we're an audio podcast sometimes because uh, <laughs> maybe releasing the video would have been quite fun if he'd done a card trick as well. It would have been quite cool to see. And, you know, speaking about the guy's other spy credentials got a little chat in there about spy game and it's nice to have another voice on one of our favorite spy films obviously we tackled that a while back uh with friend of the show chris carr and had dan mindell the cinematographer on the for an interview for the film as well so yeah talking about working with robert redford and a very fun impression of tony scott there i didn't think i'd ever hear that on the show yeah that was a lot of fun and i mean tony scott was such a legendary character um it's fun to hear that like that was very much the case for those who actually worked with him and it's not just kind of the stories passed from person to person to the point where they become kind of misconstrued absolutely but you know in terms of i think it was he said it was his first major motion picture what a a a crucible to go through but what a great sort of learning tree to sit under as well tony scott someone like Dan Mindell around, Robert Redford, even Brad Pitt as well. I don't think they were ever together, but certainly Bob Redford was. And a great way for an actor to learn the ropes. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I was really interested to hear about his just journey into doing a Star Wars movie because there's such a weird relationship between, you know, Bond and Star Wars, likely because of the fact they both shot at Pinewood over extended periods. So you would have this kind of intermingling of character actors sometimes and typically the histories are kind of linked in a lot of ways. And so I was really interested to hear him just talk about the process of um, getting the gig, but also just like all of the complications in terms of the absolute terror of any secrets of the movie leaking out. That's such a modern thing. In 1977, when they were shooting the original Star Wars, these were not concerns that actors had to go through. No, and, and you know, I, I was when I was hearing Rufus talk about that, I was taken back to sort of hearing about the production of Tenet. And hearing about the cast being locked in a room, having to read the script and then being thrown out the room with no script and having to sort of, I think, I can't remember, one of the actors in the film said he had to read it four times to get his head around it and then wasn't allowed to read it again. I mean, it, I understand the secrecy. And, and, and yeah, Rufus even said they were like flying drones overhead trying to get shots of them making Rogue One. I understand the secrecy and the protectiveness uh, of Disney. But it, I, there's certainly a, a cold element to it and, and whereas acting is quite a human thing it's it's the ex, you know exploring of emotions and displaying emotions to put a story across and to sell something i suppose um but to have that sort of stripped away because you you can't find out any more about the film because you're only getting your lines and you can't really even sort of study your lines you just get them flashed and you get to quickly learn them there's no like introspection as to what 
your motivation is. You just have to kind of wing it. And I, I'm not going to make some sort of pithy sort of hypothesis, but you know, we're looking at uh, Hollywood now that's basically your franchise and, and sequels. It's like sort of homogenized in a way sometimes. And I, I wonder if that's part of the reason why. Yeah, I would think that's a part of the reason for sure. Yeah. And it is interesting just how like the concept of like working in these types of movies was so different at a time. Now we live in a world where like that is the primary source of work for like, you know, good money. And so a lot of actors are out there, you know, like Rufus, who's doing like great theater work, independent films. I think he was in the movie 45 years. Um, and then, you know, stuff like Star Wars and, and Bond are great gigs to get. But when you hear about the experiences, as, as fun as they can be or as rewarding as they can be, they don't have the freedom that some of these other jobs have. Well, you think about... Um... Christian Bale recently being in Thor Love and Thunder and sort of talking about the harrowing experiences <laughs> he went through filming that basically acting against nothing and what Gore the God Butcher has to sort of put across in that film like the loss he suffers and things like that whereas it's just Christian Bale acting into the ether and I can only imagine that is exceedingly tough and it actually all connects back quite nicely to Bond in a way because you think back to Jacqueline Bissett, who we had on the show for Casino Royale 67. She spoke about how Peter Sellers left her um, for her close-up shots, and she had to read across from, I don't know, one of the ADs, probably something like that. And she took that as a lesson to her going forward in her career to never let any of her actors that she's shooting with read by themselves and to always be there to read against them, to give them lines even though they're off screen and don't necessarily have to be there. And yeah, it's it's fun how this all connects. I was hearing an anecdote recently too about like Jack Nicholson when they were doing a few good men and he's on the stand and he gives, you know, that big fiery speech, right? We all remember it. And he proceeded to do it for all the other actors for their moments. And at a certain point, I can't remember if it was the director or someone else said to Jack Nicholson, like, you know, you don't have to do this. We can cover it without you. And he was like, Hey, it's acting, it's what I love doing. And uh, it's one of the finest courtroom dramas ever created. So uh, I, I'm glad he mm -hmm. did it, to yeah. be fair. Um, but yeah, and, and obviously uh, Rufus popped up in Operation Mincemeat recently, which I know is a film you've not seen, Cam, but we did a declassified episode. It was myself and previous guest of the show, Tom Butler, uh, covered it, I think it was around about the summertime, uh, late spring earlier on this year. Uh, and we had a lot of fun with that film. So it was interesting to talk to Rufus about it because he plays quite a central role in the film and sort of the differences between working from a real life character, sort of doing adaptation of that against working for some more fictional characters we did with spy game, star Wars, bond, etc. Um, and yeah, his preferences really. So that, that was fun to talk about. Yeah. I'm looking forward to covering that movie on the actual show, you know, doing it like as a proper review episode, because that was a, that was a bummer case where it opened in theaters for you guys, uh, you know, over in the UK, but here it was like, several months later where it was finally going to be just a netflix film yeah it, it's definitely out there now but yeah we're, we're holding on to watch it together down the road when we, when we pick up on that but overall i think it was a, a really insightful interview um it's always nice to hear from people that were part of the sort of bond legacy uh and you know as we sort of explore quantum of solace in this interview and the next one it's always nice to hear different perspectives
Yeah, for sure. This was a ton of fun too. And very great stories, like just a genuine energy. And, uh, you know, Rufus was a fantastic storyteller. Absolutely. So um, I guess, Cam, the question is, what are we doing next time? Well, Scott, we have another Spymaster interview tackling another aspect of Quantum of Solace. We are going to talk to director of photography, Roberto Schaefer, about lensing this movie and giving it its really visually distinct style. Yeah, we spoke a lot about the visuals in the review uh, earlier this week with David Zaritsky. If you haven't checked that out yet, I suggest heading over there as well. But your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out our Roberto Schaefer interview next Tuesday. Um, we're going to go deep into Quantum of Solace and how they made it look the way it does, dealing with the production issues and all that sort of stuff. So it's a really fascinating interview. I suggest if you enjoyed this, catch up with that as well if you like what you heard on the show please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s but until next time listeners just remember tosca it's not for everyone (laughs) 